We uh, continue in our series through the book of Philippians this summer with all joy. And uh, before we do so, let us, uh, let us pray. Father, we do thank you this day uh, for uh, the simple pleasures of a summer day. And uh, we thank you, Father, for the, the light of the sun enhancing your creation. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that similarly the light of your Spirit would illumine our minds that we might see your word and behold you, Christ, in awe and wonder. We pray it in your name, Lord. Amen. In December 1965, the Beatles released their sixth studio album entitled Rubber Soul. The album was described as a major artistic achievement attaining widespread critical and commercial success with reviewers taking note of the Beatles' developing musical and I would say even philosophical vision. One of the hit singles on the album was written by John Lennon entitled Nowhere Man. Lennon claimed that he wrote the song about himself. In it, we begin to see intimations of existentialism that spoke loudly to that generation. Perhaps you remember the lyrics. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to, isn't he a bit like you and me. Paul McCartney said of the song, I think at that point John was wondering where he was going. And to be truthful, so was I. I was starting to worry about him. The nowhere man knows not where he is going. And Lennon forces us to ask this question, is he a bit like you and me? Are we like him? Do we ever find ourselves sitting in a nowhere land making nowhere plans for nobody? That is, do you ever find yourself in this life without direction, without definition, without meaning, without clarity on what this life is truly all about? Now, if there was ever one who stands as antithesis to the nowhere man, and an antagonist, if you will, it would be the Apostle Paul. For Paul, there always seems to be a somewhere, a place where he is going. There's, there's no nowhere for Paul. Only purpose and meaning and clear direction. We saw that last week as we, as we saw Paul's passion for the gospel and, and its progress, even amidst suffering, as, as long as Christ is proclaimed. And we see it again this week in a different way. For, for he's able to say with utter amazement, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There it is. Perhaps for some of you a, a, a verse that you've committed to memory and maybe even for others a a life verse, a verse that informs you in, in your purpose and direction in this life. Perhaps I think it is the most beautiful 
sublime, magnificent summary of the Christian life ever ever penned. It, It is equally striking in its simplicity and power and profundity. In the original language, the verb is actually supplied, and so it, it, it explodes on the page. For me, to live, Christ, and to die, gain. For Paul, life is Christ. And so it should be for every believer, every follower of Christ, that he is the meaning of life and the object of life and the inspiration of life. He's the motive for life and the goal of all of life. For without Him, there is no no living apart from Christ. A, A Christless life, in Paul's mindset, is a lifeless life. To live without Christ is not to live, but only to exist which would seem to prove Mel Gibson right when he says in Braveheart, every man dies, not every man lives. See, Christ is what makes life life and living living, period. Paul knew that. It's something that John Lennon had not yet grasped when he wrote Nowhere Man. And that truth that life is Christ is central to this passage in, in the second half of chapter 1. Perhaps as, as you've read through this chapter, you're, you're surprised by the conspicuous absence of any commands or imperatives. Paul gets through a quarter of the book, essentially, without giving a directive or a command to these believers. It, it actually first comes, the first command, the only command in chapter 1 comes in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now that's a significant command because it directs the, the body of the letter from this point forward. Not surprisingly, many consider it a key to the verse. And I think what Paul is doing is he, and these verses that come before that command is is setting before us an example of his life before he gives us a command. In a sense, he's showing us as he gives a testimony of his commitments and who he is and what he is about, he is showing us what a life that is lived worthy of the gospel looks like. He's going to apply that in a particular way to the, to the Philippians, but I think in Paul we see that with crystal clarity. Before giving that command, he gives us a a, a sense of a description, these indicative truths, this kind of the the statement of facts, if you will, about his his own life and commitments and what is of first order priority. This is typical in Paul that he'll move from indicative to imperative and that that the indicative is foundational to understanding the command. And in fact, it serves as a safeguard for the imperative so that we don't simply end up with a Bible that just gives us a bunch of do's and don'ts, that that somehow it, it serves us simply as a rule book for life, and that's its greatest value. Paul never saw the Scriptures 
that way. And so the indicative, if you will, is a safeguard from learning or, or ending up with a, just a try-harder Christianity or, or ending up with some kind of moralism that is bereft of the gospel of grace. So if we are ever to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, then I think Paul wants us to understand at least three significant realities, core truths that, that come from, from his life and what he is saying to us before he, before he gives us a command. And these, these indicative realities are essentially this. Paul shows us what is first and then what is best. And thirdly, what is, what is necessary. And then the implication of understanding that is the imperative and the command that he gives to us in verse 27. Let us begin with what is first, Paul says, verses 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is facing a trial, quite possibly a Roman tribunal, and the very real possibility of a death sentence that stands before him. He is, he is honest about that reality. And yet he says, no matter, as long as Christ is honored, exalted in my body, that, that whether I live or die, as long as my life serves to honor Christ, that is all that ultimately matters to me. That is what is first to me, Paul is saying. The word to honor means to to magnify, to make large, to exalt, to glorify. So that Christ might be glorified, for Paul is above all things. It is his goal in life, whether he finds a favorable sentence or an unfavorable one. He wanted Christ to be magnified in all situations. What does it mean magnify Christ. Honestly. I think it has been defined as magnifying is to show the magnitude of his value, one theologian has said. I think that's, that's right, that somehow in, in glorifying Christ, in exalting him, in honoring him, we want to, to, to magnify, to show the greatness of his, his value, his person, what he has done such that in Christ I'm satisfied and free and joyous and magnifies Christ. That's not always how we, how we worship God, how we understand God. I think it was Sam Storms who helps us understand that there are two different ways of magnifying. Uh, there is magnifying in, this, in the way that a that a, uh, a, mic- a microscope does it. That is, it takes something that is small and it makes it larger than it really is. It, it is magnification by distortion. Uh, it's not how we are to magnify God. But tragically, there are many 
Christians who think of God this way. That somehow he is, he is one-dimensional. He is, he is there simply in moments of crisis, the, the foxhole prayer, so to speak, that that's, that's the God that, that they seek to magnify or understand in their minds, that, that he is somehow some kind of uh, uh, Santa Claus, if you will, just, just looking to shower good gifts with really nothing more to it. That would be a, a terribly small understanding of who God is. That would be a deficient way of magnifying God. But there's a second way of magnifying God, and that is the same way that a telescope would. And a telescope focuses on something indescribably huge and massive and causes it to appear as it really and truly is. See, a telescope peers into the distant realms of our universe and attempts to display before our eyes the massive, unfathomable, indescribable dimensions of what is there. It is in this latter sense that we are called upon to magnify Christ. And so it was for Paul. This is what he sought to do. It was of first order importance. So how is that, that it would be made possible? Paul says two things, through your prayers and by the help of the Spirit of Christ. That even this, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. And when Paul's talking about deliverance, he's not talking about being freed from jail. That's not what he has in mind. He, he uses a word for salvation, and what he has in mind is, is that deliverance that will come on the final day, his, his final vindication, where, where he, is, he is vindicated and, and, and the gospel is rightly vindicated above all, all things. So Paul is not speaking of his physical deliverance. He is looking to Christ in his situation to be exalted whether he's executed or whether he's released. That was first for Paul. It should be first for us. If we are going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we begin by looking to magnify Christ, to show his, his greatness and his beauty and his glory and his grandeur and his radiance above all things. And we, we glorify him when we are satisfied in him when when we rest in him when we are at peace in christ no longer longing and striving for the things of this world but at rest in christ that is how we magnify him whether it be in joy or in sorrow in plenty or want in trials or triumphs We magnify Christ when we put him first, for that is what is first. But it also makes it possible. It is connected with what is best. This is what Paul shows us in the following verses. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? 
I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Literally in the Greek, that is very far better. That is best. What is best? To be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ. Paul understands that, and it informs the very reality that he is able to put Christ first. Those two things are intricately intertwined. Paul is faced with a very real dilemma. If he lives and is set free, then he continues in fruitful gospel ministry. That is good. But if he dies, then he's with Christ. And that is better. Not only better, very far better. Best. See, that reality... That reality of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished on his behalf is what forms him and shapes him. It becomes the anchor for life so that life is lived for Christ first. So that life is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is is that certainty of Christ and being with Christ on that final day that enables Paul, that compels him to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that with Paul? Do you desire to say that? Do you think that way? When Christ is what you are living for, When he constitutes life. Friends, is that life to you? Is Christ that one thing for which you live, that one thing above all things for which you live that defines you and directs you? Or is it something else? Some some other purpose maybe. Maybe something good like family or or a home, or work, or career, or even a spouse, or recreation, or retirement, or ease, comfort. Maybe those are the things that drive me, that I'm pursuing, that, that I look to for purpose and meaning. I, I, I think the test to understand what I'm trusting in is what happens if that thing is taken from me? Does my life collapse? Does, does life become pointless if that is, that is no longer there? If that's the case, then, then I'm given a clear indicator of what is first, what, what I'm living for, and it obviously is not Christ. I remember having a, a concern for um, a, a widow I was talking with. This was more than a year after the death of her husband. Uh, she loved her husband. They were married many years. And, uh, and she loved him and respected him. It was evident to me. Uh, but as I listened, I, I'm wondering, what is first? And so I asked her something like this. If, if, if you were in heaven and you got there and you found out that your husband was not there, would you still want to be there? 
Would you still want to be there? And she hesitated as she looked at me. And in that hesitation, I knew of her great love that it was a real question to her. And she finally said, yes. Yes. I want to be there because I want to be with Jesus. That was that was a confirmation for me of what it was that she loved more than anything else. What she was living for. What life was for her. The love for her husband was real. It was good. It was right. The grief was appropriate. But her love for Christ was greater. Friends, only when I understand that can I say with Paul that not only is is life is Christ, but death is gain. Only, only when life is Christ can death be gain. Or if life is anything else, then death is loss. That's the reality of death. Only when we truly know that to be with Christ is indeed far better will we live And be able to live as if Christ is everything. So knowing what is best compels us to live for what is first. You see how those things relate? Knowing what is best. Being certain of what Christ has done. His his atoning death. His his resurrection and the power of his resurrection. that, That he's paid the ultimate price for my redemption, for my sin, that that I can know forgiveness of sin in Christ, knowing that, knowing that one day that will be fully realized on that glorious day when he returns, knowing those things, that I will be with Christ, knowing them certainly, is what enables me to live first for him. So it is when we are certain of these realities that we can live as if Christ is everything. That means we will begin to pursue Christ in this life. That that he will take prominence in our lives. That that we will give him time and affection. That we will stir our hearts to know Christ. To grow in our knowledge of him. to, To understand uh, what Edwards called the, the admirable conjunction of his diverse excellencies. That is, he's lion and lamb. How can that be? That's who our Christ is. And it's glorious. And, and to know him, to understand that, to, to be consumed with that in a healthy way, that's what life will look like in this world to enjoy Him and delight in Him, to commune with Him, even as we partake of the table, to remember what He has done. It also means we will serve Him. It means we will serve Him and we will seek the growth and progress of the church. And that leads us to our third central truth here. It comes out in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all 
for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's shown us what is first. He's shown us what is best. Now he tells us what is necessary. Paul seems to have some indication that his release may indeed be possible because he's longing to return and, and sees that as a very real possibility. And though he longs to be with Christ, first and foremost, he realizes that it's better for the church, for these believers at Philippi, that he remains with them. See, the necessary thing is this. For Paul to remain in the body is for the well-being of other believers rather than his own. And this is what Paul desires, ultimately. Do you see God's, in God's design how the church is preeminent? How it's, it's furtherance, it's growth, it's building Becoming solid and strong is, is part of God's wisdom and design. And Paul seems to grasp that this is an absolute necessity. And so he desires to be used that way. And in, in so being used that way to stay with them for their progress and joy in the faith, he is in essence putting their interests above his own. The very thing he's going to talk about at the beginning of the next chapter. It's only because Paul seeks to do what is first, magnify Christ in all things, that he's confident in what is best, that one day he will be with Christ, that he's able to set aside his interests now for the well-being of others and the building up of the church. And this is what he desires to do. I'm not sure I desire that the way Paul desires that. I love the church. I love the body of Christ. I love the people that make up the body of Christ. And yet so quickly I find myself serving my own interests rather than theirs. Can I say that with Paul? Does the church have a place of preeminence in my heart and my life such that I'd be willing to sacrifice everything for the betterment of the church and the advance of God's kingdom? Is the church dear to me that way? When making a major decision in life, do I first ask what is best for me and my family? Or do I ask, What is best for the church? What is best for the church? Do I think like that? I think that's how Paul thinks. And it's these core realities, these indicative truths that have changed him. Just just think for a minute. Glance over, if you will, to chapter 3. Starting in verse 3. This is the reality of who Paul was. He says, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, something has radically changed for Paul. That that his religious credentials are rubbish. Everything he lived for and purposed himself in is nothing now. But only that he would know Christ. Only that he would know Christ and his righteousness. It is because Paul understands the righteousness of Christ. And he's not looking to his own works, his own righteousness, for any kind of standing before God. But he rests in that righteousness, in who Christ is and what he's done in that reality that he's able to put Christ first because he knows what is best and live for what is necessary. That then leads to one implication, the imperative that follows in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we're going to explore that in greater detail in the weeks ahead, what it is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in a manner where we are standing firm in unity and being faithful for the gospel and fearless, not frightened by our opponents. That's the reality of how Paul applies living worthily to the church at Philippi. That is to come in the weeks ahead. Even next week as we look to the, to the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. But for now, it is the table that calls us this morning. For the table calls us to dwell upon Christ. That we might see what Paul saw. That we might understand him as he is. That we might know what he has accomplished that it might shape us and change us as it changed him, that we might dwell on him and meditate upon him. Let us pray toward that end. Father, we ask, Father, that your spirit would show Christ to us even now.
that we might say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.